podcast with your host, Jake Weaver, engineered by Cedric Swan. Hello, everyone. We're back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. We just had a last really great run of episodes. We had Ken Babs, then visionary artist Chris Dyer, and we're going to continue that run. We're going to keep it going with the incredible Will Grinnell. We're going to talk today about cannabis spirituality. But real quick, before we go into Will's bio, I just want to remind all you listeners out there, because I know I can see my stats, as I often say, got international listeners, got national listeners, feel free to tell a friend. The bigger this podcast gets, the more listeners, the better guests we're going to have. It's just going to get better and better and better. And I promise you, look, I promise you, I'm going to get better. I'm going to get better every episode. Every episode, I get a little bit better. So stick with us. Tell a friend. MidnightOnEarth.com. And here we go. Now, we're going to talk about Will Grinnell and cannabis. Grinnell is a music industry veteran of more than four decades. He founded his own management booking and event agency, Origins Music International, in 1992. And at that time, he went on the road as tour manager with many of the artists on his roster, and thereby cemented relationships with artists and promoters alike. Since moving from the Northeast to Maui with his family in 2010, Grinnell has closed the booking agency side of Origin Music International to follow his 45-year passion for cannabis finally. <laughs> Thank you for doing that. That's amazing. He became active in the cannabis industry, founding a cannabis genetics research and production company, Sticky Finger Seeds, and helped co-found Deep Green Agency, a cannabis advisory firm, because cannabis is such a big business now. We all, we all know that. He then developed Deep Green Genetics as a department of Deep Green Agency, and Grinnell also co-founded Maui Cannabis Guild, and serves as president. The Maui Cannabis Guild is a 501c nonprofit cannabis law, reform, legalization, advocacy, and activist organization. Grinnell also is honored to be a team, mem- team partner with Earth Dance Global and is inspired to co-manifest more events with the talented Earth Dance team. Will's a very multi-faceted guy, but we're here today to not talk about his earth dance world which is a beautiful world but we're here to talk about cannabis spirituality will is a cannabis guy when i met will he resonated the spirit of cannabis to me i knew that like me i love cannabis i knew that like me he understood the spiritual aspects of cannabis and that's what we're here to talk about today hello will how's it going great aloha jake and um aloha to the midnight and earth community and the whole earth community Yes. Uh, midday and, and midnight. <laughs> each and every time each and each and every time as we say. And I did for- um, wow, that's 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 a lot that's a big intro, Jake. That's a lot of stuff. <laughs> who, who who told you all that anyway? <laughs> <laughs> I did uh, weeks of research into your life, and uh, I, that was oh my, my essay. Gosh. Hopefully, I got a good grade on that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's 45, 50 years. Uh, you know, it goes fast. 
Well, the sudden, I'm looking back and going, "Oh boy, I did." That's pretty. That's why I've got gray hair, you know. Yeah, I did forget to uh, mention, Will, that you are in Hawaii right now, in Maui, Hawaii. Is that correct? How's the weather right now in Maui, Hawaii? Uh, perfect. You know, this is the time of year. I mean, this is our warm time of year, actually. August, September, and October are the warmest months. So, when you um, moved from the Northeast, where did you move from in the Northeast to Hawaii? I live in a little uh, town named Sandwich, New Hampshire, um, a little village in the, in the uh, White, White, White Mountain National Forest. And I grew up on an island on a lake there in a very unique community of uh, lake and island people. I mean, everything we did by boat. Uh, you know, t- to me, here you know, on Hawaii, we use the term mainland quite a bit because that's you know, where the planes come from and the food and you know, things like that. But um, our rolling papers come from the mainland, too. and um, but, you know, when I was growing up, we used the term mainland back in New England, back in New Hampshire, because that's where we parked the car and got into the boat and, you know, loaded up the groceries and went to the island. So, you know, the, the mainland was a big term in my life uh, from probably one of the first words I learned. <laughs> so, yeah, I moved from uh, New Hampshire, uh, pretty abrupt move, just had the opportunity, been in the music business for a long time, and Hawaii was a big part of our uh, touring for 30 years at that point and um, great opportunity to get the family out here and my son who's at the right age and we did it you can do it man it seemed like the impot it was against all odds but you had a house out there did you have some sort of residence in place that allowed you to make it a smooth transition or did you just go on leap of faith and ended up in Hawaii um, leap of faith I mean I had yes. good community support here from all the years that I've been touring, you know, and, and a lot of my musician friends here in the islands, Marty Dredd, of course, and many, many others. So, you know, I, I had strong community support um, by the time we had moved. And I had, um, for the couple of years prior to moving, um, well, in 2008, I was able to, my wife was a Waldorf teacher, and she took a sabbatical one year, which was accepted in that uh, curriculum. And um, we drove across the country with our son, who was 11 at the time, homeschooled him out of the back of a van as we drove all around the country. And then we ended up here for four months during the winter, uh, 2008. And so that was a big, big sort of uh, entry to okay. us moving and very helpful. You know, And then two years later, sure enough, bags were packed and boxes were shipped. <laughs> yeah. And you did it. You took the leap of faith. You had trust in what, you know, you know, I love reggae. I know you love reggae. We talk about the most high on this podcast quite a bit. You had faith in the most high that everything was going to work out. You did have the community there. It does feel good to have friends and know that you have some connections in new places. But like you said, you took a massive leap of faith, which we encourage people to do. Because if you don't take those leaps of faith, you're never going to grow. Absolutely. Yeah. It was a really big growing um, for me, of course, just you know, growing up in New England and then always wanting to travel. You know, I lived in Jamaica for many years, too, in, in the 80s, early 80s through really? pretty much the whole 80s. And seasonally, um, I lived there year round one year, but um, mostly seasonally, three or four months each season. And I had a property there. But um, yeah, it was a big leap of faith um, going from New Hampshire of all places to uh, here. You know, and I mentioned community, 
you know, obviously we moved from a really strong community to community where I still really have strong roots back there at the lake, um, Squam Lake in New Hampshire. And um, I've been lucky enough to go back uh, twice a year since I moved um, in the springs, in the fall, and sometimes even luckier in the summertime um, due to some relationships that I still have there, uh, business relationships actually with property owners. I, I did high-end property management for some really big families out there, um, hundreds of millions of dollars of the property, so a ridiculous scene that I did since I was a kid, sort of born into it, um, and, you know, driving around in my boat and running this marine contracting business. And during all these times, I ran the music industry, uh, the booking agency, Origins Music, and there were some pretty classic times in, in the springtime when we were doing big openings, um, you know, getting all these very high-end summer camps ready for the, the people to come up Memorial Day and stuff. So I had I had to be there. I mean, I was running a crew, but I had to be there too. Meanwhile, summer festival season is, you know, coming along too. This is April and May on the lake, and things are full tilt. So I had early technology um, air cards and stuff back in the, in the late 90s and the 2000s. And I used to do these funny maneuvers of setting up the booking agency down at the lake at a client's house in you know, some space while all my contractors are working and doing stuff. And like, I remember a couple of times in long-term relationships, like uh, I think um, Donnie Strausberg from the Fox Theater once, he called, called me out on it. Cause there's always construction noise in the background and, and people would ask me, I'd say, oh yeah, I'm having the office renovated. And um, like three, four years into this, Donnie's like, geez, you sure do have your office renovated a lot. <laughs> I said, yeah, only in the spring. <laughs> so, so many hats were worn um, during that time back there. So what, I guess, what attracted you? Because you did start, or you were help, you're helping with Ma in Maui with this uh, 501C, the Maui Cannabis Guild. So what in your life, I guess, attracted you to cannabis the first time? Like what, where, when did cannabis come into your life? Um, it, it came in early. Um, I had my first cannabis smoking experience was age nine. And that's because I had an older sister and she very much hippie, went to Woodstock, you know, was slightly involved with the music scene in the Boston music scene, you know, hanging out with um, Peter Wolf a lot from the Jay Giles band and then there's this radio station here, WBCN, um, which is really a great um, station back there in the day in Boston. But all the, you know, so that was sort of her scene. And of course, you know, a lot of really great pot. And, you know, she's getting the best stuff coming through Boston, really. And um, at a nine-year-old, I, I stole some weed from her. And tried to do my own little self-initiated um, smoke session. Well, her roommate, so a lot of times my, my parents would still, you know, we're all younger then. <laughs> my parents are still alive. Uh, this is early 70s, even, yeah, 1969 or 70. And um, so a lot of times in the weekends, she would be taking care of me, who is 11 years uh, younger. And, you know, for the weekend. So I'd be exposed to, like, these scenes, really cool scenes. Um, and I really wanted to be a part of it at age nine. So I tried, but it didn't work. And then a roommate caught me, and he was just like, oh, yeah, little boy, you want to steal weed? and be sneaky, I'll show you. And he fired me up in some hash and I got, just, I got tripped. So, so you, you smoked know? hash at nine so, years old, Will. Yeah. <laughs> and, 
Yeah, really good hash. That's and, that great um, way to start, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, <laughs> well, you know, I didn't come running back to it for a couple of years. You know, it was sort of, I, I felt I was part of the scene then, and I could hang out with my sister and her, all, all the older hippie folks, you know, and I did, you know, and there was a more of an ease, and I think, I guess I had sort of that consciousness, you know, I was experienced to some extent, as Jimmy would say, but I didn't, you know, it still was sort of fearful for me. It was a big experience, um, you know, and my little life at age 10 and 11, you know, still had other things going on. And then at age 12, I have no turning back. That's when I um, got my first weed seeds uh, from someone that actually brought them from somewhere from uh, the dock or Northern India or something like that. And again, one of my sister's, you know, older hippie friends, traveler and i started growing weed at age 12 and i started smoking <laughs> every fucking day and i had i you know you actually started it. growing I'm, weed at 12 years old i just want to clarify that for the people because you are now legendary status at this point like we're, we're we haven't even talked about the amazing things you've accomplished in your life but just being a 12 year old weed grower alone is huge you're a leader you're a trendsetter how many people can say yeah, they're, they're, how many people can say they were 12 years old growing weed? Not many. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of us, though. <laughs> you know, we were suburban um, country kids, you know, and right. um, we love planting seeds anyways. Yeah, so <laughs> it was just the next step. Um, you know, and we weren't growing weed like we're growing weed today. I mean, we're growing, I mean, like that year, growing like Colombian well no actually I got like 12 that's right that's when I got my first really good weed that, that flowered and went through I was growing it a little before that actually um in my mom's garden it was just growing sativa seeds that I'd find in my sister's you know bag the Colombian or Thai or something like that so actually I did grow a, a little weed but there was no seriousness or intention it was just haha you know throw some seeds in the ground they came up and it's like oh look at that I didn't know anything about flowers or anything like that. But age 12, somehow I'm trying to think how I was educated on it, but I just knew, you know, it was like, all right, this is what you do with this plant. This is you flower it. And I think um, that was the first year when I intentionally knew, because I had an older buddy, that's right, who was coaching me. And he said, well, did, you know, this strain, the one that works here in New England, you know, all those ties and Colombians you're going before, you probably noticed they didn't do anything. They just grew up and never flowered. Um, this is what you want. So what we have to do next is seed it. And I'm like, oh, seed it, yeah. What do, we, what do we do that? And I was just tripped out to learn that this is such a distinct two plants, the male and the female. It's like, wow. <laughs> and um, like I said, that was uh, the summer of 73 and never turned back. So what did you actually get that plant that you flowered? Did it actually function? Did it have crystals? Did it get you stoned? Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> So right oh, yeah. away, you had the green thumb, you had the cannabis magic that allowed you to propagate something beautiful right off the bat. So, well, you... I mean, I was, I, my, I was stealing my mom's miracle grow. So <laughs> I think uh, I got to give I got to give miracle grow a lot of credit. You know, I, <laughs> you, you know, these days, of course, we use organic practices. But back then, who knew in 1973, it was just incredible fertilizer, know. right? And it worked, but that's I think I, I was growing at Miracle Grow until probably 80 or so. Right. Um, something like that. Well, I know because we're doing a lot of gorilla growing and we did, did take a uh, certain other supplements up, but we couldn't, we couldn't use manure, chicken manure, cow manure. 
anything like that could because the raccoons and the skunks and um I don't know who else, but we, we did identify the raccoons and the skunks. They just love running around in a good soil supplement, especially when it's out, you know, in the middle of the forest or in the middle of the swamp. Um, nice. And um, yeah, so they're attracted. To use number of- oh, sorry. They're attracted to the, probably the food that's in the excrement that they're, you're using as manure. And then they come just yeah. tear, tear it up. But when did oh, you? Oh, yeah. They tear- oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Will. No, I, I was just going to say that they would tear our dirt bags right apart if we put to, well, you know, you learn things like that. But I think that's why we came back to Miracle Grow a few times back in the 70s. Well, yeah. And I mean, the consciousness of, of people, you know, back then, it was just like you just didn't know what was in it, but it worked. You know, it's just fertilizer you bought yeah. at the store and you're a kid. But had those early experiences when you were smoking, at one point, did, did it cross a threshold for you? from being just kind of like this intoxicating kind of substance that made you laugh and fun into something a little bit more deeper, a little bit more spiritual. What, what were some of those early experiences for you? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think working with the plant, you know, really ushered me into that. And uh, like I mentioned, when I, when I just saw the simplicity of a male and a female plant could make, it really tuned me into nature. Um, really, I've always been very deeply connected to the, um, plant life especially but all um forms of nature and just the vibration in general um you know it was almost like a dmt experience you know getting stoned and then tuning into the plant and realizing what was happening you know and following it you know that that, tr- that trail almost that into the roots and into the soil you know my first uh, fantastic fungi kind of experience if you, if you will because i really did i, I sort of journeyed with the plant in a lot of ways in those first few years. Um, and then also, you know, what really, I think, made me confront, you know, I don't think I was using the word spiritual back then, but confront the meaning of cannabis to me was the kind of trouble that it was bringing um, as far as prohibition or, you know, the acceptance of it. So my parents, of course, you know, were of that generation, older, straighter, you know, and it just wasn't cool and to them it was a problem and I was smoking weed and this that and the other luckily I had an older sister who was a hippie who had had some bigger issues um, with law enforcement and some pretty serious stuff and um, so they were already sort of through it and exposed to the whole scene but it would create a lot of friction with my current so that was the first reason I had to ask why is this plant so important to me that I'm willing to to take this stand you know because I was finding myself taking that that stand for cannabis at a very young age. So what did you, what um, was the legal, answer? And then legal stuff would pop up. Of course, you know, we're always um, hiding it. And, um, you know, all of us kids back then, we were just country boys and girls driving around the road, smoking a lot of weed. And we had to deal with country cops, you know, every now and again, which actually back then it couldn't have been cooler. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm but, sure it was rebellious. And, you know, but, you, were, you know, just all these confrontations that I was starting to see from weed and it being illegal. Um, and the biggest one, actually, which really was a game changer for me, is um, I'm trying to think what grade it was. I think it was, it was sixth grade. That's right. Um, and we had a large sport complex field, like a lot of schools, you know, really out there with a lot of swamp and wetlands around it and stuff like that. And I had this first big jar of seeds that I had. It was all Colombian and, you know, just seeds that um, someone's seed collection from their seed trade, and, and, you know, like a year's worth. And I was like, oh, geez, 
what do I do with this? So I took it and I just threw the seeds around. I mean, I selectively planted and pushed them under the soil a little bit. The whole perimeter of this sports complex is full. You know, and this is back like in April. And school went until um, late June in, on average back then. And sure enough, like by early June, there was like four foot pot plants all over the fucking sports complex, like surrounding it. And so um, it took the school until... I don't know, very close to the school closing to realize what was going on. And, and then, of course, talk to kids, talk to kids. You know, there was a clear trail right to me. Johnny, goat seed, planting all these seeds. Well, they said there was something like 500 um, pot plants all around the school. That's bullshit. I mean, I mean, they might have been, but they were like little hemp things. And some of them were really nice and bushy. But it wasn't like what they made it up to be. But anyway, it was a really big deal. It made the newspapers, you know, this like 14-year-old kid doing all this weed. And, um, so I got permanently kicked out of the um, public school system of Lincoln, Massachusetts, and um, ended up, my dad ended up putting me into this coat and tie uh, semi-military private school the following year. And, and so I can tell you that was a life-changing experience. So, so that's when I was approached with the spirituality, spirituality of cannabis. You know, we really had to ask myself, there's, there's a lot of agonizing scenarios coming at me right now because of this, this plant that I love so much. And it's, it's not because of the plant, it's because of these people who all have such venomous um, vitriol, you know, venom in them. This is just all venom. And I recognize that the time that the gut is just so, so negative. These people all need to smoke some weed. (laughs) (laughs) So you, that was the answer that you came to. You reached out for that answer. Like, why is this so important to me? Why am I willing to take on confrontation with family, with potential police, with authority figures? And it was because you understood the experience that you had with the plant growing it. You, You grew with the plant, made you a better person. You connected more with nature. And then on top of that, you could see how it was making you, better it was healing you is making you a more open loving person and yet it was totally vilified by all the authority figures in your life that must have been really strange yeah it was to me it just came from such a natural but later in your life i mean it seems like cannabis has always been with you a person that's you know initiated so early in life into the spirit of cannabis uh, it seems like you are, like I was saying earlier in the show, you are cannabis in a way. You you are out there as a voice of cannabis representing cannabis. So did cannabis, as you got older, you know, high school or wherever you went after high school, did that, did cannabis stay with you? Did you keep growing? Oh, yeah. My hair and me <laughs> towards cannabis. <laughs> oh, Yeah. How, yeah, do you, yeah. how do you think it affected you as you developed, you know, into a, a man from a teenager into your 20s and such? I definitely think it helped make a better person. There was, you know, as all of us are, you, there's so many intersections and so many options and so many wrong ways to go without knowing it at the time. And um, I think cannabis always kept me aligned with a community, you know, the other kids that were my age at that time, there's a bunch of us. We we're mostly interested in cannabis, you know, a lot of LSD and mushrooms and, you know, anything like that we could get our hands on. But it was really, you know, that. And then there was sort of the other side of the tracks, sort of the meth and the opiates and stuff like that. Well, I guess it was really just heroin back then. It wasn't opiates. Um, 
you know, just powder drugs. But, you know, there was always that separation in a little, in a little ways that cannabis helped keep that for me. Um, it's like, you know what, things are really iry right here. There's just like so little drama with this, this posse of um, weed smokers of mine, you know, good family, friends and neighbors and everything. But wow, you know, look at all the drama and the, and the stuff that's going on with that group over there. Fuck no, you know? Right. So I think it, it, in a lot of ways, it was just a natural um, sort of what would be the right word, you know, common sense. Cannabis is common sense in a lot of ways. It helps you stay within common sense. Cannabis is common sense. Oh, can you elaborate that on that a little bit more, Will? It just opens up your chakras in your mind to what I think is more reasonable and normal thinking. So it you know, puts things on a very easy-to-see perspective. So were you cognizant? You know, what's right, right, what, what's right and what's wrong. Right. You know? I mean, it's pretty yeah. obvious in common sense what's right and what's wrong. And I think cannabis helps guide you into that. You know, it's a positive path. So you were able to notice that these people, they were taking terrible drugs. Were you, were you cognizant of the fact that it was like almost like a different frequency of human at that point in your life? Or were you just like, oh my God, those guys are on bad drugs the vibration, the feeling I'm getting from the community surrounded by cannabis is loving and positive. I'm definitely attracted to that. Were you cognizant that it was like a frequency, like an energetic thing, or did you just feel like they were just people on the wrong path? I think both. Okay. And again, having an older sister, you know, um, she stepped in a few times and sort of, you know, she taught me and, and my very best friend to this day, who also was, um, I think he's 12 or 14 years older than me. Um, so he was an older hippie at the time. And they they knew better. You know, they knew what good mescaline was. They knew what good acid was. And they knew what brown acid was. And they knew what PCP was and, and stuff like that. And I remember the first time I brought back this weed that tasted really funky and stuff. And it had, um, it was called tea. And um, it was, it was whatever that's called, the PCP stuff. and. Right. I was, you know, so my sister smelled it, you know, she's like, what the fuck are you smoking tea for? Blah, 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 blah. You know, you know, so I learned a lot from that too. Um, so you did have the guiding guide. spirits. Yeah. The guiding spirits of your sister, your best friend, they were able to kind of like notice when you were uh, in, in, introduced to something that may be destructive and kind of put the kibosh on that. Right. Right. And you know, the same thing with meth when it was introduced into our, a little hooli and we were kids of probably maybe 16 at the time or something. And, you know, we tried starting it and I think we ended up smoking into, um, you know, I had like three really bad days. Um, I don't remember the events particularly, but I do remember like some big drama, you know, and then my sister stepped in. She said, really? That's what you guys have been doing for the past three days? You know, duh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's it's awful. I mean, we know now, years later, how much destruction methamphetamines have caused communities across the world, not just our country in America, but across the world. Methamphetamine is just so destructive. And yet, in some yeah. places, it's equally illegal as methamphetamine, which is so crazy to think about still to oh, this it's day. Insane. It's insane. So, um, but, you know, again, I think cannabis, like you were asking before, I think 
if I was a non-cannabis smoker and I was putting it into that position where we were, you know, sampling nuts for three days, maybe the common sense um, signal wouldn't have rang as, as loud. Um, I believe that at least, you know, I, I believe cannabis is a really hardcore guide. It's a common sense guide. It's very spiritual because I think cannabis, I mean, if you know, you lived in Jamaica, so let's talk a little bit about Jamaican music. And when you started Origins Music International in 1992, were you focused specifically on reggae music or was it just kind of across the board who you would work with? Um, I was very, very passionately into reggae music then. Okay, so Origins um, as music. I was, you know, as I was a lot of music. I've always been a hardcore Zappa head, you know. Right. Of course, Jerry, you know, music across the board, you know, and music, you know, was, was blossoming back then. Just so much was going on. The Clash, the Police, just you know, Brian Eno, all over the place. And, um, but reggae, yeah, it was in my blood. So what I, and, um, oh, I'm sorry, but what I understand, sorry to interrupt, Will, but what I understand about Jamaican's perception of marijuana is that they believe, the Rastafarians believe, that cannabis sprung from somehow they found plants near the grave of King Solomon when he died. And a lot of Rastafarians believe that that's the origin of cannabis. So cannabis in Jamaica, cannabis and reggae music has deeply spiritual roots. Wouldn't you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's their holy sacrament, you know, absolutely. And, you know, back, when I first started going to Jamaica in the mid seventies through the eighties, there was still a lot of really um, spiritual, tri- you know, Israelites and, and the true Rastafarians, you know, in the countryside and so forth. Jamaica you know, became a little crazier and more uh, diluted in the years after that. But, and um, I mean, that's something that really, really struck me with cannabis: the Rastafarians and uh, them using it as a sacrament and the way that they would treat it from the seed up it was just really inspiring yeah it was a huge influence on me as a young guy uh you know i'm 41 now but when i was like 17 or i think i was 16 i remember the first time i heard reggae music and it stoned out of my mind like under the influence of cannabis with the spirit of cannabis i was with some friends we were listening we had just smoked some amazing homegrown organic weed from eugene oregon and we were smoking and we were listening to this like heavy metal music because this band Helmet okay, and was on one side of the tape. And then the tape flips over and I'm really high. Tape flips over and it's Peter Tosh legalize it. And it was the first time uh-huh. I ever heard it. And, and it hit me like a ton of bricks of love, a ton of love. It hit, me, <laughs> hit me like a ton of love. It was so powerful, the vibration, the frequency and how in sync it was with the frequency of cannabis that I was... An incredible reggae fan ever since and it hasn't stopped to this day um but for you when you were in jamaica and noticing these jamaicans treating cannabis as a sacrament treating it so spiritually did that increase your reverence for cannabis oh absolutely so you were noticing them and then you're just like oh my god am i i mean i didn't i didn't need any more converting that's for sure but um <laughs> You know, it just yeah, it just unified everything that much more. You know, and and I, and I really felt a Rastafarian vibe for a while. I went quite dready dread for a little bit in the early eighties, I guess it was. Um, 
Right. Yeah. So it seems like you were connecting. Then you noticed that there was, and just like me, when I first got into reggae music, I noticed that there was this culture that had deep reverence for cannabis. And I was having these awakening, wonderful experiences with cannabis. So for me to come into contact with reggae, it was like really powerful because I finally found someone who, or people, I finally found people who loved and appreciated cannabis as much as me and appreciated it in a spiritual way. Because a lot of people, you know, they use it just like a substance, like they would like having a drink or, you know, just like eating a sandwich or something. They're not taking it in as a sacrament, but to see people taking it in as a sacrament totally transformed my life, totally transformed my relationship with cannabis. And it made me deeply spiritual with cannabis and you know tell me what you think about this will but what i noticed when i smoke cannabis is that it seems to open up a pathway with spiritual energies i start to connect with i guess god or whatever that mysterious thing is start connecting with that divinity and i just become more aware of the divine energies around me and i start thinking and acting more from a divine perspective. How do you feel about that? Yeah, for real. Do you think it has that same effect on you? Like when you smoke, do you, do you, do you feel like it opens up like, like a pathway to God? Like you're just there. It's almost like praying in a way. Yeah. I mean, I think just what's called the DNA of cannabis. I think that there's a pretty straight link. Um, to our creators and our angels. And I, you know, I think everybody that smokes cannabis gets that connection in one way or another, whether they realize it or not. It's there. Right. So people, maybe they're not spiritually in tuned. Maybe they don't think a single spiritual thought in their whole life, but they go to the dispensary, they're smoking cannabis. It's opening them up spiritually, whether they realize it or not. And maybe it's changing their frequency because it seems like if cannabis was legalized nationally, America would be a totally different place. Oh yeah, totally. You know, the world. Yeah. (laughs) We've been saying that for years. I mean, gosh, you know, like everyone needs to experience cannabis and the world would be better. It's not like they have to use it every day. I know a lot of people that, you know, they don't, they don't smoke terribly at all, but they're still completely, they've been there, they've done their experience. Right. And, you know, the thing is, is that it does have a place, it seems to be an herb, because people constantly, you know, my, my partner is an herbalist, and she deals with every other herb but cannabis, but I think that people forget that cannabis is an herb just like you would find in any other herb and herbalism, but because of its effects and because of its history and and everything and the energy attached to it, it's perceived as this whole other thing, which I think is so funny. People don't realize that it's actually just an herb and there's other strains of cannabis that are out there that are completely different than the cannabis sativa or cannabis indica in that family. Yeah. Pretty mind blowing, but, uh, Oh, go ahead. It is. Um, you, you mentioned strain. I just wanted to. Um, there's a strain in Oregon that someone was talking about recently. A purple train wreck. I've heard of it. And it was grown as a hemp, 
but it somehow is very high in THC, but doesn't contain the Delta 9 that triggers the um, analytical for testing for hot hemp. Have you heard about this one? I haven't yet, but there's so many different strains popping up. I mean, people talk about CBD. Now they have CBG in the last year or so, which is a different compound, mm-hmm. which is the stem mm-hmm. cell of cannabis, which is, so it seems like there's different strains that have all different kinds of possibilities, but I haven't heard of that one yet, but I'm sure it's out there. So Will, tell me more about uh, what you started in Maui. Tell me about the Maui Cannabis Guild and what that's all about. Well, um, the ad, ad, you know, advocate and um, political activism group um, that formed, and um, that was a, a few of it. Some of the founders from Earth Dance um, live here in Maui now. They had moved here around the same time as me, and you know, we've all become really good friends. And we realized that the uh, cannabis legislation out here in Hawaii was really, really behind, like in Stone Ages, um, compared to where it should be and, and could be. You know, so we took interest in that. And at the very same time, in our same uh, group of very good friends, um, were the people that founded a group out here called Chakra Organization, um, a sustainable um, group that went after Monsanto and, and actually it's, hopefully some of the view, our listeners here have heard of this because it was so covered up, but it was a big deal for us out here. It's called the GMO um, moratorium. It's about um, 2014. I think it was. I kind of remember something about all, that, but I'm not really it, recalling it. Well, it was against all odds. Monsanto has one of their headquarters out here and they're doing some really awful stuff. I mean, they're killing school, school children with drift pesticide and they have no regulation. Hawaii is the one place in the entire world. I mean, outside third world countries have more regulation than um, we do here for open testing and GMO open testing and cocktail spraying of pesticides and so forth. It's pretty gnarly. So long story short, you know, enough is enough. And, um, so Bath and Shaka and Tara and the group um, led that charge. They got 30,000 signatures. They activated 30,000 votes for this GMO moratorium. I mean, this is like completely never been seen before. Um, and when the case voted it in, and then Monsanto fought it and fought it and fought it, took it to the mainland, to the Supreme Court in San Francisco. And the case was won by Shaka, but there was no end result because of lawsuits. It's just how they work to sort of um, do it. But so with the um, transition of that group sort of coming out of that and us getting them interested in cannabis, we all got together and there was a group of five of us, including my son, that um, formed the the 501c3 and therefore the Maui Cannabis Guild is an advocacy group um, and to work with lawmakers. And we drew up... um, we spent a whole year studying, and this is years this is now 20, so 2018. We spent the whole year of 2018 studying all the legislative bills across the board. I mean, 800 of them, you know, and really fine tooth picking through like the top 50 of the good and the bad. Because, you know, we have the luxury now of doing just that. There's been, um, there's so much history and so much data on the financial success and the social success, you know, all 
realms of success of legalizing and unregulating cannabis. And um, so we went all through that. We wrote an amazing bill ourselves and started working with senators, um, finding the right one to introduce it on the floor. Um, it didn't last one day on the floor. And the other cannabis legalization bill that was there came out the gates with sort of reasonable, you know, beginning legislative models like, you know, top entry fee would be 2500 in this, that, and the other. And within three Senate um, session meetings, they had augmented it up to $1.2 million entry fee to oh buy and permit into the, you know, and this was just for a proposed legislative bill. Um, oh, it's such a shit show. So, so it seemed like they were a little, a little against, it. against it. And it's old school um, agricultural corporate cronyism out here that's controlling it, it you know. And yeah. even to this day, our best, and it was taking steps backwards, right? Because we've had medical here for all these years, maybe 20. Um, matter of fact, it has been 20 years um, starting this year. And there was no model for dispensaries until about three years ago. And that was totally rigged. And it's a whole side story in itself that, you know, corporate CEOs ended up like agricultural corporate CEOs directly related to Monsanto ended up, ended up getting these fucking permits out here, which are limited to one, um, two per, per um, county. Um, and it's a total vertical um, that they own. Isn't it so funny? Isn't it so funny that these people that have penalized people and ostracized people and condemned people for cannabis for so many years, as soon as there was any form of legalization, they were right in there with the money to monopolize it and take it over. Dude, Donnie Scherer, our uh, helicopter pilot out here that spearheaded um, Operation Green Sweep and is responsible for the loss of legendary heritage strains because he was very successful at Operation Green Sweep. He's one of the fucking owners. You know, oh I mean, that's how it works out. That's how it uh, works out here. Now, he's not listed in the top. If you go and look, he's not the two um, owners on the top, but he's, you know, in the paperwork right there. And it's just insane. And he was, you know, trying to get, his, you know, his own permit for his own place, which luckily the local paper out here called him out and actually put him on the front of the paper that week. You know, saying what the fuck? <laughs> Will, can much. you can you remind people what Operation Green Sweep was? Because I remember it was a big operation that took down a lot of growers. And you're saying oh, that gosh. he was a part of it, and now he's running this cannabis he, operation. He spearheaded it. He, yeah, he was the leader of it. I mean, he's a helicopter pilot, it's subcontract. And what DEA. happened with that? So he, the DEA, and him set up a situation where they busted a bunch of growers. Tell tell that very briefly. All right. So Operation Green Sweep started way before I was living here, of course, like 95 or something like that. And then there was a really aggressive sweep where um, there was a big budget came in right around year 2000, maybe it was. I may be off a couple of years in all these things. That's I'm okay. not a historian. But um, <clears throat> where they did an aggressive, aggressive sweep, like I said, for a two, three-year period, starting on the big island and gridding, gridding and gridding and gridding. Maui. Gritting, gritting, and gritting. That was the first assault. And that took out so many heritage strains. I mean, people ask about the Maui Wowie or the Kuna butter and this, that, and the other. And aside from uh, crossbreeding and, you know, just hybrids coming here and ruining the air with pollen, 
some growers, you know, still would have survived that, except for the fact that um, the helicopters came and took the weed away. And that was all spearheaded by this guy, Donnie Sh- Don Shearer. And, um, and you're saying he came he, back he in and, doing that. and took over the Hawaiian cannabis industry pretty much. In a lot of ways, yeah. I mean, there was there is a power control thing with certain entities, and, and that's not even safe to go into. So we won't sure, do sure, that. Sure. Um, but you know, this aggressive behavior really lasted right up until 2016, and right around the same time, uh, Department of Safety, which is the police, who were the medical marijuana program for that 15 or so years up until that point, um, transferred their authorizations and, and running the program to Department of Health, where it should be. It is medical marijuana, after all. Um, and, you know, they lost a lot of their ability to just go out and be wild cowboys and jump people at, at will. And they, they're they a little more regulated now. Um, so, yeah, wow. knock on wood. What, what, a, what an interesting situation. It just goes to show you, like we were saying, that like all these people that penalized us, that, and we were the we were the trailblazers, we were the trendsetters. I, I grew cannabis for 15 years of my life, and, you know, we were doing it way back in the day. And and then as soon as it was, the legal structure was there, they came, these people come in with the money, and, and, and they were the ones that, that th- essentially threw some people in jail, which is so brutal. But... You know, getting back to the good part of this, um, you, I mean, the Maui Cannabis Guild has done a lot of good work, right? I mean, there, there's been some fruits. Oh, yeah. Flavors. Yeah, 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 yeah. We opened some eyes. We got people listening within the, the lawmaking system. We made some friends with senators and lawmakers. Um, you know, there's a lot of them out there that, that see, they know. They, they know the data. They know that Colorado celebrated its billion dollar in tax revenues. Um, almost a year ago now, and you know they know the success of cannabis legalization. But the success, you know, legalization is a misused word, and that was one of the big points of the guild that we try to emphasize to lawmakers is that to create um, an economy and something that works for the whole community, it has to be a micro business model, very lightly regulated, and really the bill that we were pushing through, the only regulation started when the farmer took their product to the cooperative where it was there for the cooperative that would take on the analytical testing. And, you know, if you failed, you failed, they won't take, you know, they won't distribute it any further than that. But that was really the only regulation we were looking at. And of course, taxing, because we had to show them their, their bone, their reward. And I think we had a 17% total tax structure set up in there of which the farmer was responsible for none of it. Nothing started until it hit the cooperative, which is the distributor. Nice. And then down to the retailer. And I think the retailer took the bigger bite, you know, something like 10%. You know, it was a, it's a great bill. Love to get it back out there again. But what we realized is that with ways being so fixed with the old school cronyism here and stuff, you has got to take a different position we aren't going to be the ones out in the front lines getting it legalized it's going to legalize legalization just happening everywhere you know i mean how could happen in mississippi for god's sake how close but, is um, hawaii to legalization do you think well pre-pandemic we were probably two to four years from it and oh right God. now they're on this big on this hemp rampage but right now you know because they're looking for alternates to you know to 
economic alternatives to tourism, there's a lot of talk about just flipping the switch, let's get it going. But again, the lawmakers got to realize that having, you know, eight owners across the state as a monopoly with vertical design does not create the 100,000 jobs that Colorado created. Colorado has something like, you know, I forget the numbers, but it's close to 18,000 licensed cannabis businesses that employ over you know, 90,000 people total. And this is just a direct handling of the flower. And then there's the auxiliary companies that are making the boxes and the cartridges. And you know, it's, it's just massive. So that's, you know, the biggest battle here is letting the lawmakers know legalization done right works. And the very first language in a good legalization bill, which thank goodness is becoming trendy across the country in like Jersey and New York and the other bills that are sitting there and not even sitting there moving around, um, is the expungement and reversing the social injustice by cannabis prohibition. That language is being used in the first paragraph in many cannabis bills right now. And that, to me, is the signal in the beginning of what might be a good bill. The second... After, you know, talking about that, the second is going into the economic model, which the only successful model for any kind of artisanal product is a micro-business model. It's just that's the laws of the business world. You know, so when you, and you guys in Oregon have learned a lot about this with these big, big, big grows. And two years ago, the Latin $200 pounds and stuff. And now you back up. Oregon's not a bad model, but it's, it would be a really shitty model for Hawaii. So then with Hawaiian legalization, you're saying two to four years out, where do you see American national legalization? Is that something that could be? Less, um, I see it as less than a year. So if they... I see it by summer being up and running. And I mean, but again, federal legalization, you know, are they going to get it right? Of course not. It's going to come with a fuckload of regulation. So you're saying and this summer, this summer is federal legalization? Did I catch that right? Uh, no, 2021. 20, but still, I mean, <laughs> obviously yeah, right. this, this summer. summer yeah, yeah. <laughs> like next summer. You're saying. I, I, sometimes I forget. I'm in Hawaii. I look out at green now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we're having a beautiful day here in Portland, but yeah, it's not Hawaii. Let me tell you. But yeah, but you're saying, I mean, that's a shocking statement. Well, so summer 2021, you're predicting federal legalization? Yeah. I think so. I think the word will be used. I think the model is going to take years and years to get it right. Because like I said, they're going to bring it in with heavy regulation. It's, 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 it's their their version of it. What, what are the indicators? The oh, I'm sorry. What are the indicators mm-hmm. for you that are telling you that? Just watching the pulse um, in sort of the more commercial things like MJ Biz and um, the money is getting too big and the corporate involvement is already too big. And, you know, I think when New York, Florida, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey legalize in 2021, um, that's going to, the first southern state's going to really turn things. So, you know, Florida's going to be pivotal. Um, I believe it's Alabama and Mississippi that are going to, Mississippi is bringing medical in. Um, Arkansas is actually starting a thriving cannabis scene right now through medical. They've had it for two, three years. Wow. So there's like a lot of these indicators there to me, um, looking at that landscape and South Dakota and just bills popping up all over the place. I mean, whoever would have thought that Michigan 
you know, would have farmers markets really open buying cans. You can go buy fucking five pounds at a, uh, um, in a parking lot at a farmer's market in Michigan, Oklahoma. Good God. I don't even know what's going on there. It's like, <laughs> let's, let's talk about Oklahoma, baby, because, uh, is it a total free for all or it's a free for all, bro. Oh you know, it, it, it's like, well, I, I've shown this to a few friends sometimes. If you go to, um, Oklahoma.gov cannabis, uh, dispensaries or just cannabis, you go on there and you look at all the registered LLCs through the state and all the, you know, the permits um, that are purchased through the state. It is fucking staggering. I mean, I'm literally like 6,000, you know, of all these, like, some of them are just like, okie dokie green bud LLC or, you know, Acme bud, you know, it's just like, yeah. So there, what is it about Oklahoma's legal situation that, that anybody can just grow weed there now? Because do they, they? I don't think that well, they have full legalization, do they? No, it's unregulated medical, basically, which uh, is spectacular. Yes, it's spectacular. Wow, that is absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. Who would have thought Oklahoma? Who would have thought Arkansas? Just some of the name, Michigan, like you said, Missouri, like these states that you, even Illinois and Florida. You know, I grew up in South Florida. It was incredibly conservative, incredibly uh, oppressive in that way. So it's for for me to hear mm-hmm. that. That's pretty wild. So, yeah, I guess those are all, you know, kind of green flags for federal legalization. So what happens then if federal legalization takes precedent before a state's legalization in Hawaii? Does that mean it's just legal? Well, that's the scenario we predicted for Hawaii all along. I mean, I might be a little optimistic by saying next summer 2021, but I wouldn't be surprised, um, you know, even within the next year or so. Um, but yeah, Hawaii's got to have a model ready for that. And that's as the Maui Cannabis Guild, once again, you know, we're telling the lawmakers saying, listen, we need to have this business model ready because it has to be done legislatively no matter what. Um, and here it is. Here's your micro business model. So let's be ready because the biggest thing about um, federal legalization for Hawaii, and if we had our shit together and really had the business model figured out, and this is my, my words that I use with the lawmakers, it's, you know, the big huckleberry, like none other, is that we can export it. We become a global fucking brand. Maui, Waui, whatever. Just right. high-end Hawaiian outdoor sun-grown marijuana. And this is what you're proposing to lawmakers in, in Hawaii right now. You're proposing that. Yeah. I mean, this is the language that we use and, and hope that they get it and we white papered this exact model. is like, like, guess what? Don't Think about interstate um, medical and recreational legal marijuana. Yeah, we got tourists and it would be a huge business. But think about the bigger picture when we can brand and market and send our weed to Brazil and Germany and Russia and Colorado. I mean, if I was in a, you know, a cannabis shop and I, I had all these choices of weed, you know, I'd always look at, well, let's taste the Maui weed or let's taste the Hawaiian weed. Right. And, you know, if it's a platinum product that we're capable of putting out here in the best weed in the world, it's a win-win. We, we become the king of the hill in the cannabis industry for, for brand shared. I say this very, very happily and, 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 and deservingly shared with the triangle, which is Trinity and, um, you know, Humble and of course Mendocino. 
And then we'll sort of wink, wink, say South Oregon too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's room for everybody. When you're talking about 10, there's room for everybody. Yeah. Exactly. When you're talking about 10 billion people on planet earth and you know, once global legalization happens, which is the next step up above, you know, national, depending on what country your national legalization, then, you know, you can grow as much weed as you possibly can and you're going to sell it. Sure. You know, it's really the sky's the limit at that point. Um, yeah, especially if it's branded as Hawaiian pot, you know, that's just, it's going to stand out. Oh, like, definitely. They're already wearing our clothes over there, wherever it is. Yeah, well, that's what they say about the Oregon weed. And of course they say the same thing in Humboldt and Mendocino counties where they have huge growing collectives. You know, they feel like their brand is so well known, yeah. their names that that'll help them in the future. How do you feel though, Will, about other cannabis type products like uh, the cannabis vapor pens, the, the, the new kind of dabs and things like that, the, all the, uh, they're extracted with CO2 and butane. Are you more like a traditional flower guy or are you into the new stuff? Flower guy all the way. Here's where the new stuff comes in. When I travel and I'm with my cannabis community in California or, or Oregon, mostly and even you know now back east is coming around all that shit's there the fancy stuff and i gotta i tell you um i got into the vape pens for a little while you know they're convenient you could sneak one in an airplane almost or i have sure um, and you know driving around town because i got tired the police now drive with their windows down they used to always drive with them up with the ac on and now they um they smell weed a lot and it's just a big argument so i got sick of that and um started smoking a lot of vape pens, you know, just about two or a couple of years ago, especially when I was getting a lot of industry friends giving me all these things, you know, sure. and, samples. And I noticed my lungs did not like it so much. Um, I'm not a big dabber. My son had electric mail for a while. And you know what I do with some really good rosin? I snake it with however it breaks up and I put it into a fucking duber. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm a duber guy all day long. Well, but I, I am interested in some of these products, but there's this one vape pen that came from like, you know, super, super connoisseur dude up there, Professor P. Um, and he gave me, gave me a, a friend, a mutual friend of ours, you know, had this vape pen with the, uh, I think it was pure live resin in it. Uh-huh. That one, I would, I would do again and I would keep it in stock. Yeah, that one was a nice one. Yeah, they have, different, they have different ways of doing it now. They have the full spectrum extract, which supposedly doesn't have any residue. But what I'm confused about is what I noticed right away is that, you know, people that were, I guess, eco-conscious, you could say hippies. These are the type of people that kind of grow, you know, people, community I'm in, and, you know, and, and so many of my friends. And But all of a sudden they're using these huge amounts of butane gas in order to make this product. And then when they're, you know, you talked about using an electric dab torch, those are actually a little more, or or dab rig, those are actually a little more expensive. The traditional ones, what most people use are like this uh, torch method where you you use a huge butane torch, you know, comparative to a cigarette lighter, huge butane torch to light this glass and using that, it's using so much fuel. How do these people juxtapose that? Like how, why was that allowed to happen and become so big in our community? when it clearly uses so many ecologically destructive components. Yeah, there's a lot of people in this whole green rush that don't think like that. You know, there's a whole generation, it seems. I'm really 
Well, I, I guess I was about to go on a rant. It didn't have something to do with that. But yeah, I, I feel that there's a lot of abuse and um, misuse of making medicine. And it's losing the spiritual aspect. I mean, when something gets broken down and refined with chemicals and fluorocarbons and, you know, butane, yeah. like does that, that takes away from the spiritual experience of cannabis. Yeah, totally. Which is possibly this sacramental ritual where you're, you know, resonating with the spirit of the cannabis as you're smoking it and you're, you're, it's becoming a part of you, not just physically, but energetically. These extracts, these, these, these vapor pens, yes, they're convenient. I mean, I use them in concert situations. They're very convenient for concerts, but it's uh, it's not what cannabis is about. It seems like no. It's, it's, no, I mean, it's an involvement. You know, it is. It's, it's like if it never happened, I, I don't know. I mean, everything that happens with cannabis somehow it, it, it's an you know it's an evolution. Um, you know, even look at the whole scandal or whatever you want to call it, the mishap, the fuck up, because people were using cheap ingredients and they learned. I mean, who knew? You know, in a lot of ways, this whole um, combustion versus eating, you know, is a big learning lesson. I mean, you know, five years ago, everyone was like, oh, neem oil, you know, and, and, and so then we learned that, you know, combusting neem oil is fucking near fatal. Um, same thing with the vitamin E with those cartridges and whatever else and i'm sure a lot of it was just you know green rush people just going in and using the crudest materials they could um but yeah it's always going to be it was always a conflict for me i I never really understood that i I did talk to some friends about it you know that are kind of cannabis spirituality people and they rastafarian leaning but they you know they kind of feel the same way but then the average consumer doesn't seem to have a problem with it and it's the most convenient form and then also the most powerful when you think about the dabs i mean some of those dabs mm-hmm. i mean they're just like whoa this like smoking an ounce of weed in one hit and then you're almost yeah. dmt hallucinating for like 15 minutes and then you come oh. back into your body it's really interesting but then you know people start doing that every day they're doing it every day. They stop. It's crazy. Some people can do a whole gram of the dab oil in one hit. Like they can just light, put it a whole gram in one bowl and smoke the whole thing. It's mind blowing to me. Yeah. But you know, for me, I think it's not good for my lungs, but my lungs, you know, it's not going to be every day for about 48 years. And they've, they're definitely, you know, like taking a hit. But what I was getting at is, you know, certain people, like his Marcus, you know, Bubble Man, he hasn't smoked flour apparently in I don't know how many years, many years, and he only smoked hash, um, solventless extract, you know, whatever he makes, and rosin now, big time rosin guys. And he claims that his lungs, the whole reason he does this is because, you know, flour was trashing his lungs and so forth. I, boy, I don't see that, at least for myself, <laughs> hitting, hitting a dab the way those guys are. Um, I'd be back to bronchial condition. Yeah, you know it's really interesting. I'll tell a quick story for yeah, a lifetime for cannabis user who's basically never gone more than a few days without smoking cannabis, and that's you know having like the total flu in the eighties or something like that. Um, is that my first reaction, or one of the first reactions in the end of March when COVID lockdowns and all that became really apparent, and it seemed at that point like, well, I'm probably going to get this shit, you know, at some point soon. Um, I quit smoking weed. 
because I already right at that point I've been chain smoking. I was having a great winter, and uh, <laughs> and uh, I had a very um, big bronchial condition that I was already aware of. And I was like, yeah, I gotta come back and smoke some weed, you know, you know. So when that all happened, I made the decision. I was like, all right, I'm I'm gonna just go shanti and no weed, and I did it for one month to the day. So like March something to February, you know, the end of February. And um, it was pretty trippy because my normal reaction and my instinctive reaction and my wanted reaction was this, holy fuck, this is weird. This is quite the scenario out there around the world. This is when I want to chain smoke weed, even triple, you know? So it was a very disciplinary thing for me in a way to, and it was very, like now we're talking about the spiritual aspects of it. You know, I thought about this before I pulled the plug. It's like, wow, how's this going to work? Um, and because I work with the plant really closely and I was able to have that, it was, it worked. And, and by the way, I did clean my lungs out really well. I made a point exercising even more and stuff like that, because the best part of quitting smoking like that is smoking again. And um, right. I'm probably back to I'm probably back to chain smoking now, but that's okay. And, that, and that's an interesting to, thing to point out because if somebody, most people that would smoke, let's say a pack of cigarettes for 48, you said 48 years. Is that correct? Will? you're smoking straight. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. So 48 years of cigarette smoking, you're pretty much going to drop dead or you have yeah. a serious lung condition. Or if they cut your lungs open, you'd be shocked to see what you saw. But you're at 48 years, you don't smoke cigarettes. You just smoke cannabis and you've never, right. you don't have those problems. You don't have the emphysema. You don't have the lung damage. Yeah. Well, no, but you know, Mind you, we all talk about cannabis being safe and this, that, and the other, but I'm old enough to know now, smoking anything we are not designed for. Sure. Cannabis is a good smoke. You know, if we were to scale things around the earth, what to smoke, pine needles, you know, and palm fronds and stuff and, you know, tobacco and all that and rate it. Cannabis would definitely be on the number one of what you should smoke, or maybe sage would be. But um, no, I'd fuck my lungs up smoking weed. You know, I used to be a really good diver in the ocean, a waterman, and, you know, I grew up in the water, and I can't dive for shit now, you know, because I'm also 59 years old, but let's not blame it on cannabis, but, um, no, I mean, you know, you'd be in denial if you didn't admit that, you right. know, that smoking is a little taxing on your lungs. Sure, especially when you smoke anything, any kind of plant matter, it's not causing anything. cancer, it's not causing the damage that maybe cigarettes would, but it is hurting you a little bit in a way that smoke would bit. just going in your, in your lungs. But I'm just like, you, you would think that if cannabis caused health problems, that the entire island of Jamaica would be in like epidemic situation at this point. No, I don't think it's that great health problems at all. And, you know, and I, I was about to say, well, maybe for um, someone obese to, to tax their lungs a little bit like that. But I know some huge, giant roster guys that smoke weed. And they're my age. They're doing good. I mean, they don't move around too much. But. Right. But they're still, I mean, the cannabis, whatever other health problems they might have due to obesity or whatever their situation is. Well, that might be corn affected. syrup. Yeah, the, yeah exactly. The, the corn syrup, sugars gluten, all these things, but cannabis isn't the issue. In fact, probably cannabis is helping him. You know, I want to know if you've heard about this. I've heard that cannabis increases the amount of GABA, the amino acid GABA that your brain releases, which is a precursor to serotonin. 
And then coffee helps you process GABA. So there's actually a synthesis between cannabis and coffee. Have you heard about this? No, I like it, though, because it fits in with the morning routine, which I'll tell you about in a minute. Yeah, let's hear it. All right. Just, you know, we live in a small little country town here in North you know, Shore, and um, I don't make coffee in the house for many reasons. Um, just, we won't go into that, but I, I like the routine of going to the little community coffee store, you know, that's a two-mile drive or whatever it is from the house and um, getting the morning coffee. You know, during COVID, I first month or so, I didn't do that. But um, the whole part of the routine is the morning duber. So it's a half a duber on the way to the coffee shop. And if I see some buddies there, maybe we'll finish the other half together, um, pre-COVID conditions. And then otherwise, you know, smoke the other half of the duber with the coffee on the way back to the house. And by the time I'm hitting the driveway at the house, I'm feeling pretty fucking ivory. So maybe that's what's going on. Well, I know that that's actually a biological truth that, uh, you know, you, you have these amino acids that all coalesce into helping you produce things like serotonin. So you, one of those is GABA. It's a big one. And like I said, cannabis increases the GABA while coffee helps you process GABA. So it works in such a great synthesis and then you're ready to go. It's, uh, you know, I jokingly call it chasing the wagon. It's not chasing the dragon. <laughs> it's not chasing the dragon, which is doing cocaine and heroin, which I would never do. This is chasing the wagon. This is the hippie version. You're smoking a little weed and you're doing some coffee. <laughs> there you go. But yeah, it's uh, and you know, how does that make you feel like through the day? Like, do you then invite the spirit of cannabis with you during the day? Do you then invite God to be with you throughout the day? starting your day with the morning ritual of the weed and the, and the coffee, but really the weed. Do you feel like you're inviting those things to be with you as you go through your day? I'm definitely inviting the cannabis uh, with me. I'll probably piss the coffee on in a couple hours. But, um, yeah, you know, um, I don't sit down at an altar. You know, there's a bunch of buzzy cannabis pictures. You know, um, picture of Swami or anything. Although I do have Swami here. Um, you know, and make that affirmative connection. Sure. You know, it's not like you know, going to church, you know, and uh, sitting down like that or kneeling. But um, yeah, I mean, the connection. I think it's just so natural. You know. It, it, well, yeah, you talk about how. Almost, yeah, you mentioned this earlier. How there's cannabinoid receptors in our brains that have a, so cannabis has evolved with human beings for millions of years of our development we've had cannabis and you know we've had opiates with us too it seems because there's opiate receptors in our brain but the cannabis has been with us as a spiritual guide you know why don't you talk about, i know you mentioned that earlier in the podcast why don't you talk about that a little bit more will how is cannabis a guide for us what is the spirit what is the spirit of cannabis and then how does it affect us and guide us uh that's interesting. Well, that, you know, would come into each person's scenario and their vibration, you know, a lot more so. But, um, you know, one thing I recently sort of refreshed my memory on is, you know, when I knew that we'd be talking about um, the spirituality of cannabis, because I, you know, wanted to look back on the history that, you know, we all know a little bit, but to sort of refresh my memory on it. 
And, you know, of course, it all leads back to China, it seems, um, you know, 3,000 years ago or so. We're talking about documented um, cases of cannabis use and spiritual practice. And um, I noticed that it was the, um, the Taoism, the Chinese that practiced Taoism were cannabis users back then. And the, a, a word Tao Te Ching or Tai Ching apparently means the way, just that. It's the way. Um, so they knew about cannabis back then. They were using that as they were developing Taoism. And it turns out that they were actually, that was a part of the, their, uh, how, their methods, how they, how they got to their spiritual place. I've also heard in the Bible that it, it was referred to as cannabosum and that they used uh, the ancient Jewish people used it in incense for their various religious rituals. Hmm. Okay. That's a new one for you, huh? Um, yeah. I mean, um, <laughs> there, dude, it's been around for so long. It's on earth. I mean, you talk about China 3000 years ago. I mean, it was in the, the Kush mountains, you know, of Afghanistan. Just right next to China. Absolutely. So it, it, it's, yeah. it's been around forever. You know, you, we talked about how the Rastafarians believe it came from the grave of King Solomon. Maybe that's where they found some seeds. Maybe he was buried with some seeds and then it sprouted up and they were like, holy cow. <laughs> we don't know. But so what we, where, where is that geographically? Uh, the grave of King Solomon? I'm not sure, actually. But uh, let, let me take a look at that. That's a uh, very. Yeah, that's one we should both know right away. I but. know. I feel like uh, <laughs> it should be on the top of our head, but you know, it's. Okay. It's now not. Now we're on tape. Well, ignorant here. Yeah. Grave of King Solomon is a massive burial chamber located in the Atlas Mountains in Northwest Africa. It was erected so between 970 and 928 BC. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Let's see. No, I wouldn't have guessed that. That's oh, quite no, interesting. They're saying it's in Mount... Uh, you know, I'm looking at the internet, but they're saying <coughs> the grave of King Solomon's oh. in Mount Zion, Jerusalem. Maybe, but they're... That's what I thought. Okay. Right. That's why... All right. But then okay. there was... There was the, I guess that's why I was confused, because there was sort of the Africa... Um, you know, it was all interconnected back then. You talk about Solomon and, and Sheba and... You know, it, it, everything was connected back then. It was such a small region, if you really think about the Middle East and Northern Africa and and, and where all those countries are. It's, it's actually a very small chunk of land. But, um, but, you know, it's just, for me, the spirit of cannabis is a living entity. Like, what I've noticed in my psychedelic experiences is that when I smoke cannabis, I feel a presence with me. And it's very feminine, but I do feel this presence with me, and, I, and it's very healing. I think it's like a healing spirit. Like, would you call the he, uh, the spirit of cannabis a healing spirit, Will? Absolutely. You know, spirit and, and right to the physical body through the spirit. Yeah, absolutely. Right, because of the healing factors of CBD, and we talked about CBG. Those are affecting the physical. Well, that's body. what I mean by it becoming a, a physical healing. But... um. Right. A spiritual healing, yeah. Um, no questions. Right. And, and like I said, I think it really is for everybody that comes across cannabis, whether they they realize it or not. Somehow, um, there's there's a recognition, whether it's their very own body, just making that cannabinoid um, connection, and and you know fulfilling its 
it's one, you know, that it's not getting a lot of, you know, especially with a, a cannabis user that's new or only once or something like that. But like, I, yeah, I think it translates that way to everybody. Well, it also and seems animals. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, go and, ahead. And certain mammals. <laughs> they're, they're affected by cannabis as well. The animals, like you think a deer, deer eat cannabis. I mean, it's part of the animal world as well. Yeah, you know, I used to always think because back east, that, that was one of our predators, you know. Um, here in Hawaii, things that you can't see are our predators, fucking badass bugs. But back east, there's no bugs. It was all like deer and moose and woodchucks and all kinds of things that you can read. And um, what we're told. So I always wondered what was happening to these mammals if they ate my weed. And, um, you know, afterwards, only in recent years, we've all learned about decarboxylation and, you know, how cannabinoids uh, work a little bit and so forth. And I wonder how that translates with those animals. Because, you know, we used to swear like, oh, yeah, you should have seen the bears. They were rolling around after eating our weed. Well, they were rolling on the weed, mostly, and destroying it. They love rolling on pot, like slightly mature weed in the late summer. Um, eat, eat a bunch of blueberries and go roll on some weed. Do you think they're absorbing uh, it through I, the skin or something? Oh, they, the bears, now that I've learned more about cannabinoids and terpenes, the bears, undoubtedly, because I've watched this, are getting terpenes. They're getting them on their fur, and you know they're getting trichomes on their fur, and they're carrying terpenes with them for the day or two afterwards <laughs> and loving every minute of it. So it seems, just so seems I ingrained. It seems ingrained as a part of not just the human experience, but also the animal experience. I mean, the medicinal properties of cannabis are not just applicable to the human body. They're also applicable yeah. to animals as well which is so amazing. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Well, I mean, as the human race progresses, as we move out of our conflict kind of tribalism scenario and, and become more of a homogenous uh, culture, it seems like that cannabis is going to be there even more. And it's just about the funny thing is just about to hit 420 here on the, in Oregon. And um, it's, you know, it's really, really interesting that we're having this conversation right now. Right now. <laughs> At this time, but it just seems like as we evolve, the gifts of cannabis are going to help us get to a higher place because you think about uh, the the food, the fuel, the fiber, the medicine, everything that comes out of cannabis is is astounding. You know, I saw a video mm -hmm. on, I saw a video on YouTube, Will, from Henry Ford who <laughs> made uh, a car out of cannabis resin but, yeah cannabis right. resin and you can watch this video on youtube and they're sledgehammering the car with a sledgehammer it's That's leaving right. it's leaving no marks it's stronger than steel so we already yeah, like yeah we already had this these these products we've we already have it so as we as the reins of oppression are removed from the human race and we unite and become one it seems like cannabis is going to play such a vital role in our development Yeah, we're getting close. You know, we just got to get, like I said, there's, there's the old crony corporate grab, um, petrochemical, agricultural, you know, pharmaceutical. They're, they're, they're still throwing some money and some lobbying at um, keeping it from being free to us to use as all those products that you just mentioned to save our lives. Um, and the Henry Ford plastic, you know, that's, that's awesome. 
you know, it's, it's a lot like Lexan, but Lexan is a plastic. And that, that if you produce a super plastic better than Lexan from weed, they don't want that shit. So, but, I, you know, that's old talk, I think, at this point. It's still practiced amongst those corporate players in the lobbyists. But I think it's, it's losing momentum real fast on the floors across the country and the world in lawmaking scenarios. Oh, definitely. You see, you see hemp clothes, you see hemp paper. There's so much more hemp out there in the public. I mean, in, in America, it's federally legal to grow hemp. And then the funny thing yeah. is, the funny thing is, Will, when I first heard that, I always had this mental, even though I was a cannabis grower for over 10 years, I always had this mental picture of hemp as this like reedy kind of tall male plant with like some, you know, some, some leaves, but no real flowers. But that's actually people. Right. That is definitely not the case. You can grow hemp that looks exactly like the best cannabis you've ever seen in your life, but it has no THC yeah. in it. It has the buds, it has yeah. the crystals, the hairs. You could not tell the difference between that and a THC plant, which I find so fascinating about the hemp world that 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 level of 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 hemp exists. So hemp is just a word yeah. they came up to describe cannabis that doesn't have THC. It's not like its own thing. It's just a word that they use, which I find so hilarious. Yeah, you know, and there's, um, back in the day, I, I, when I first heard about feral hemp, it was late 70s, early 80s again, and um, on a dead tour, and some buddies had this purple... Um, pretty chronic smelling weed, and we called we all call it placebo weed. It didn't really get you stoned, but it was smokable and stuff. And later learned that they uh, they grabbed it in Indiana or something like that, just on the side of the fucking road. They're driving along, you see all these buds hanging out, and they grabbed it. You know, slightly seeded, but it wasn't like terrible. And um, loaded their trunk with it and shared it as they're going along in this dead tour, and you know started selling it. Um, giving away free joints, you know, they were sort of cool about it too. They were giving away a lot in the parking lot. And um, then the dumbasses went to a Buffalo show and drove across, somehow ended up going across the Canadian border after the show. It's fucking high and they got in the wrong road and had a trunk full of weed and they got busted. Oh my God. <laughs> and the Canadian took it as weed and they're saying, no, we picked this shit in Indiana. It's fucking swag. And they're just like, ah. And it was a, a really bad situation for them. Did they get out of it because it had no THC? No, they didn't know how to test for THC back then, I don't think. Wow. Um, I don't think it's quite, I mean, they saw weed. Their eyes saw weed. No, they were in a lot of trouble. I think they spent a few years up there. Well, you know, as we were wrapping up the last 10 minutes here, Will, I just want you to have a moment to tell the people anything that you feel like they should know about cannabis that maybe they don't know, even though they're like educated or, or cultured or, or just been on the earth for long enough to have some experiences. What's something that you feel like people should know about cannabis that makes it special? Right on. Um, I mean, we reflected on so many of those ideas and reasons. Um, throughout this podcast, which has been a lot of fun, by the way, Jake. Thank you. Um, during, it makes me uh, look back nicely on a lot of things that's happened. Um, 
you know, I think I always try to encourage the newer generation as they carry on the torch to do so with a lot of um, respect for their elders, who, you know, because there's a lot of elders out there, um, you know, at 59, I guess I would be approaching that, but there's folks sort of almost half a generation up from us. They, you know, they pioneered this thing in the 60s and the 70s, and a lot of them got really hurt, um, you know, with prohibition. And so we really have to honor them. And all throughout uh, time since then, uh, many people, all generations have really been hurt by prohibition. So we need to fix that right away. And there's a, um, a project called Last Prisoner Project that I really encourage people to go to and um, support. Um, they're making a lot of headway, they've got a lot of traction, um, working with multiple governors across the country on getting weed prisoners out of jail. There are still a lot, a lot of people in jail doing like long sentences. You know. And what was the name of that project again, Will? It's Last Prisoner Project. The Last Prisoner Project? Yes, it is. Lastprisonerproject.org, I believe. But okay. it is LPP, Last Prisoner Project. So um, that's an organization. that I, It's a friend of mine that's it's founded it. And um, we just want to support her any way possible because, like I said, um, they've got a lot of traction going right now. They, they've made some shit happen. They're working with, you know, or, uh, all the way up to governors in, in many, many states. And Is this for people that are uh, still incarcerated for cannabis still, charges? Still. In, in yeah, this is an expungement. This, this, is, this is clemency we're talking about. Okay. Um, so anyways, I just wanted to throw that in, you know, because, right, you know, I see a new generation of cannabis um, people coming in, whether they're breeders or extract people or um, you know, it's a, it's a fast growing big industry and, um, a lot of folks coming in that just, I don't think have that, that knowledge and, and that wisdom of where the, you know, how the plant really fits in and, and where it starts even, um, for some people. Well, it's a shamanic and plant. Just, I think that people don't realize, you know, uh, Rosemary Gladstar, she's a famous herbalist. Uh, she said that cannabis is a shamanic plant. It's the shaman of the garden. So you look at the other plants that are in your garden, you know, like, uh, tomatoes or potatoes or whatever you might be growing. But then you look at this other plant and its role is shamanic. And, and I think what you're saying is that you want people to realize the depth of the role of this plant and how this specific plant is spiritual and here to help humanity in so many different ways and help not just humanity, help the entire planet. You want people to realize that. Yeah. It's not just a product. Yeah. It's not just something you can't, it's not just something you grow and then, you know, turn into something to sell for money. The intention has to be there to heal people. The intention has to be there Absolutely. to activate the true purpose of the plant from the beginning. And that's going to give you a mm -hmm. better product. Absolutely. And, and there is a, a way of combining the business and the spirituality of cannabis um, in a tonal way. Oh, no, here, it's a Hawaiian word. Do what's right, I guess. Um, and I see Hawaii as having the biggest opportunity of anywhere in the world to really set that example. Just being an island nation in itself, you know, separates us. Our branding ability separates us. Our agricultural legacy out here separates us, puts us in perfect positioning to jump right into um, being an artisanal um, cannabis brand. 
And, you know, so the benefit of that spiritually for people immediately, you know, people are suffering and not able to pay their bills and, and going through that kind of stress that affects people spiritually tremendously. So if they're spiritually connected with this plant and they can have a, a backyard garden with a certain tier level of you know, permit and enhance their, you know, help stabilize their financial world with a cannabis business, a micro business, a family little ranch business that you know, we see as the perfect model, you know, that enriches that family, those people, that community so much by having that, that, you know, that property and those people stabilized because, you know, right now, especially there's just so much unemployment and so many people suffering on that stress. Yeah. I know what it's like. And then right away, yeah, right away they would have the opportunity to create resources for themselves in addition to providing a service through the plant that's healing people. So they're getting, yeah. you know, they're providing a service, the byproduct of their services, they're getting money for their incredible plants. They're stabilizing their financial world. So they're not stressed and it's, and it's not affecting right. their psyche. So they can just do so much more. Yeah, man. Well, yeah. Well, you know, and, and a lot of people coming into this industry and, you know, comments and I travel sometimes and, People say, oh, weed grower, yeah, wow, that's, you know, Don Perignon every night and stuff like that. And I'm just like, whoa, great fun. You know, farming in general, corn farming, whatever. It's one of the hardest jobs in the world to start with, you know, just balancing your books every year as a farmer. And then, you know, the work schedule and everything else and, and environmental issues and, you know, all the things that you face um, as a farmer. And then cannabis, you bring that into the mix. You know, it's got to be one of the hardest jobs in the world. You know, oh, and then to make it start hard. jumping through all these hoops and then, you know, discriminated against still because we're cannabis users, we're cannabis people, we're cannabis farmers. You know, there's always somewhere there's a discrimination, you know, about it. And, um, you know, people got to realize it's the hardest job in the world. And it's probably one of the most honorable jobs in the world to well, provide. Yeah, there's definitely. Yeah, for sure. Well, there's definitely a lot of misconceptions about like people just think like you're like, oh, you grow weed like you just threw some seeds uh, into a pot and, and magically right. some, this money tree like pops up. No, it's literally one of the most <clears throat> hardest jobs you can have, as Will said. I mean, not only do you have to deal with the traditional farming stuff, but you have to now be in sync with a plant, a living organism that has a certain rhythmic cycle. So now you're taking your human rhythmic cycle of your weeks, your months, or whatever, however you stage your life, and you have to adjust that to now be in resonance with this plant that's on, if you're doing an indoor three-month cycle, if you're doing an outdoor, it's a nine to, you know, six to nine-month cycle, and, and then it totally upends you, and you're completely at the whim of this plant. You know, whatever that needs, that's what the priority is in your life. If you're a can cannabis grower, people don't realize but Will, I just want to say thank you so much as we wrap up the end of this podcast. Thank you so much for being a part of this. I really appreciate your insight. And as, you know, things develop in the cannabis world, as things change, as we get more legalization, you know, we'll talk again. We'll have you back on the show and you can just enlighten us more about the spirit of cannabis. How do you feel about that, Will? I think it's awesome, dude. And um, we'll do likewise. Um, I'm starting this thing with Earth Dance on Earth Dance TV uh, coming up 
probably November, the first Monday of November, we're starting it, but just simply Marijuana Mondays. Okay, so and Marijuana Mondays. Let's, let's, actually, yeah. that's, that sounds amazing. So Marijuana Mondays, Earth Dance. First Monday, first Monday of every uh, month, starting November. Starting November, first Monday of every month. Is there oh, yeah. a time? Earthdance.tv. Is there a time that it starts? Do you know? Oh, uh, because it, and here in Hawaii and everything else, we're trying to figure it out. Um, I'm trying to think about if we get 420. That's right. 420 here would have been a little late on the East Coast. It's going to be in the afternoon. Okay. So, but you'll see it on Earthdance.tv. You're going to start doing Marijuana Mondays. Oh, yeah. No, what, the, the newsletters will go out and so forth. And, and it's actually really exciting times because, um, my company that I've been working with, it's a partnership with Earth Dance. It's actually, they founded Deep Green, is uh, my company, Deep Green and Deep Green Genetic. Um, and we are launching the online store, which is it's open right now, but it's not functioning. So we're officially opening October 20th to Deep Green Genetics online store to get your cannabis cultivars. Nice. And you, we you have the go most, there. Amazing, most amazing family. Um, of breeders put together that sort of the concept of deep green genetics is you know, putting bringing together the all the decades of um, cannabis friendships and these heritage breeders that never wanted to even be on the market. I mean, you know, ten years ago or even less, we we were all trying to stay off the radar. You know, we didn't want our name known. You know? Now you want your name <laughs> on every like, list. Yeah, yeah. Well, some of these breeders still are like, well, you know, this is my heritage strain of 40 years, but for you, yeah, we'll feature a little bit on the website. So, so we're going to have some really interesting stuff. So out. your um, Deep Green Genetics Deep Green Genetics is going to be on the Earth Dance website, or is it going to be on the Deep Green Genetics website? Well, it's already a separate entity. It's a, um, a, a collaborative with Deep Green Agency, um, and, and that is where the Earth Dance um, crossover comes in. It's um, Deep Green Agency um, co-partnered with myself and the founders of Earth Dance, and it's all part of the same sort of conglomerate. So where and, um, where's that store going to be then? The store in itself is going to be on deepgreengenetics.com. Okay, that's what I was looking for. Deepgreengenetics.com. Yeah, yeah, and you'll find some of the you know the bigger but the best players like Humboldt Seed Company in there, and then. You'll find um, breeders like cult, um, Conscious Cultivators. Right. Um, Our good friend, Joshua Stroud. Yes. And, and that's really, yes, and, and absolutely. And, and um, love him to pieces. And he's a perfect example of the kind of breeders that we um, are working with in part, you know, that are part of the deep green family. Organic, is, highest you know, quality, really the conscientious, heritage. intentional, and heritage right. strains, you're saying. Exactly. Okay, well, we'll be joining you there, and also Deep Green. Wait, what was it? DeepGreen.com, Green DeepGreenGenetics.com. That's the one. Okay, yep. Deep Green Genetics, and then EarthDance.tv Marijuana Mondays starting in November. You betcha. Oh, dude, I'm gonna totally be there. All right, well, well, on that note, here's our outro music. I want to thank you again for being a part of the podcast. Stay on the line with me, Will. We're gonna say a few more words after this and people please tell a friend all right mahalo everyone stay high